Since my wife did it, I better say that. Well, this morning, if you're if you brought your Bible, you're more than welcome to turn to James chapter two. Or if you didn't bring your Bible, there's usually one in the chair around you, chair in front of you, and you're always welcome to uh, follow along on the screen as well. But we're continuing through the book of James. It's a very short epistle. Uh, We'll probably wrap this up by Easter time. It's a series that I've titled Together. It's not just written for us to read as one man or one woman. It's instruction for the church that we do what it says together, that we not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. This book is not just written for first century Jewish believers, though that was the original audience, but it was written for our benefit as well. We know that it was inspired by God. It was penned by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And it was written for the churches throughout the ages. And so if you will, read along with me, beginning in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes... And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Father God, today this is a hard passage to hear for churches, but open the eyes of our heart, the ears of our soul today, Father God, and let the word hit us. Let it take root. Let it not be said of faith assembly of God that we commit the sin of partiality. Father, that we truly are a welcoming, loving, honoring church today. Teach us, Holy Spirit, And convict us where we need it. Amen. We read this whole thing. And James, if you've ever read James' epistle, this is why people don't like it. Because he meddles. He likes to step on our toes. He comes out swinging in chapter 2. We're getting into the meat of what he has to say to the church. And we would rather just have stopped at chapter 1. 
Nobody likes to think of the fact that we may be an unwelcoming church. But church, hear me on this, please. The the point of what he is telling us is very simple. An unwelcoming church is no church of Christ's. I'll say that again. An unwelcoming church is not Christ's church. As we dig deeper into this epistle, I, it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit convict me as your pastor as well as, as those of us who need to hear some of these things. And we're going to be faced with some very hard questions going forward. Questions that we together as a church have to answer. To begin with, are we a welcoming church? We have to pause and think about that. Do we make it a point to be a welcoming church? Well, we've got greeters. We have a hospitality team, sure. But as a church, as a whole, how do we welcome? How do we, as a church, honor those we may see as not someone worthy of our honor? Someone we may not find honorable? And maybe most importantly, The question that we really have to ask, how do we love those we have a hard time loving? As we go through this text this morning, we have to keep in mind that if we are not loving, if we are not honoring, and if we are not a welcoming church, we have some work ahead of us. Because an unwelcoming church is not Christ's church. And that's the first thing we have to address. How do we welcome Go back to verse 1 in your Bible real quick. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. This is the third time James calls them brothers or brethren. He's saying, we're on equal ground here. I'm your brother. I'm not above you. I'm not beneath you. We're in the same ballpark here. He's making it very clear. We are in this together. It's a familial term. And his tone, it's a little gentle, but it's very firm. And he's telling them, you don't show partiality with your actions in the church of Christ. That word personal favoritism, it's one word in Greek, prosopo limseus. And it means just that, personal favoritism, partiality. James is very clear We are not to hold our faith in Christ with an attitude of partiality. Or as our translator says it today, personal favoritism. But we should note the way he describes faith, it's not just an individual's act of believing. It's not just one person's moment of faith or or one person's faith at all. In fact, it's the entire Christian faith. This is the faith that is given to the church. This is our common faith that Jude speaks of when he says the faith which was once and for all handed down by the saints. It's our faith together. So James is writing this. It's not just the action of the individual But it's for the whole church to not show favoritism. That's why he begins by saying brothers. It's plural. It's not just for one person in the church. You know, we'll speak of God's holiness. We'll speak of his love, his justice, his wrath, his mercy, his grace. All of these other traits. But the one we often will neglect, and I'm guilty of myself. The one trait of God's that we forget about is his impartiality. God does not show 
love or respect to a person or a people based on their physical abilities or their skin color, their wealth, their intelligence, or any other thing. In fact, look at Abraham. Who was he before God called him? He was a nobody. In the Old Testament, God often speaks of the importance of not being partial in the treatment of the people of Israel. In Leviticus 19.15, he says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And another place in the law, Deuteronomy 1.17, You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 2.11. He says, For there is no partiality with God. In fact, if we want to see God's partiality, you have no further to look than the genealogy of Jesus. The four women that Matthew mentions were these great and powerful and amazing women when God was done with them. But look at Tamar. Nobody wanted to be married to her. She had to trick her father-in-law who was bamboozling her into giving her a child. Rahab, a lowly prostitute, pagan from Jericho, Ruth, the Moabitess, who everybody in the entire book of Ruth points out she's an outsider. She's a Moabite, except the man who loves her. Uriah's wife, who sometimes, we know she's Bathsheba, but some translators, due to her sin with David, they will leave her name out entirely sometimes because of her involvement with David. Even looking at the humble beginnings of of Jesus himself, he was the son of a carpenter from Nazareth, What good could come from Nazareth, right? That's what they said. And yet he spends the first 30 years of his life pretty much there. The fact that Jesus spends much of his ministry in Galilee and Samaria, a place that was looked down on by Israel's leaders, that's God's partiality. There's no respecter of persons. James is aware of all of this, and so he tells the church, we are not to show favoritism either. He's going to go forward and explain himself so that we can understand exactly what he means by all of this. He's going to illustrate it and flesh it out for us. And he begins to do that in verse 2. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and we're just going to stop there for a second because James is laying the scene for us of this illustration, this hypothetical situation that he's bringing to light. Notice his wording. He says, if... He's not saying this has happened. He's saying this might happen. He's not suggesting this is a problem within these churches, but he is addressing it lest it become a problem. If two types of people come into your assembly, and this pulls us back to last week's message too, the assembly is designed for the believers. But how we treat the unbeliever when they come in tells quite a bit about Not them, but us. They should be able to come in and know what's happening. Not feel uncomfortable or afraid, but welcomed and loved. The hope is they come in as an unbeliever, but they leave as a believer, a brother or sister in Christ. That they come in and join us in worship. Should be noted too, The word James uses for assembly here is the same word for church, synagogue. It's a Jewish term for a church. So we know this is is an official gathering of the believers, but should an unbeliever 
or a guest or a visitor, whatever you want to term them, comes in. They're not necessarily part of that church. But if they come in to join you, he says, if we assemble together, if we come together, and look at how he describes the first person. He has a gold ring. He's dressed in bright clothes. Second man's obviously poor. He's got dirty clothes. But let's understand the picture that James is painting for us here. Jewish men and women would commonly wear rings, but few could afford a gold ring. Now, if you were in Rome, if you were a Roman, especially in the city of Rome itself, and you were a government official, if you were a senator, it's possible if you were high up in the pagan society, well, they would wear gold rings as a means of social status, sometimes on more than one finger, often on all their fingers, except maybe one or two. Well, this man has a gold ring. Chances are he has other rings, too, of other significant metals on the rest of his hand. Now, I want you to understand something this morning. This gold ring on his finger, although it's four words, five words, gold ring on his finger, that's one word in Greek. That's how pretentious this was. Crusodactylios. It's a, big, it's a big word that, that would automatically get the audience's attention. It would be like saying, imagine a man were to walk into our sanctuary this morning wearing full Armani. He pulled up into our parking lot driving a Bentley and his wife is carrying Gucci. You all know exactly what I just said, right? They're rich. They've got money. They've got power, most likely. It's not a common word. In fact, it only happens once here in James, nowhere else in the New Testament. But it would have caught their ear. Such a person, this word is describing as someone, oh, we want him in our church. More of that, please. And this hypothetical church visitor, he's respected in the world. He comes in wearing brightly colored, fine clothes. You've got to remember, many people in this day and age, they could only afford one cloak. And they often wore it until it became shabby and dingy. But this guy walks in with fine clothes. Again, he's showing his wealth and his prominence. He's treating the sacred assembly as if it's a, a fashion show. In fact, the word used is lampra or lampras. It's bright, shining, gorgeous apparel. It's the type of clothing that Herod Antipas would wear, or Caligula, the Roman emperor himself. In fact, it's the same word used to describe the clothing of the angel that visited Cornelius in Acts 10.30. Pretentious, but it is beautiful. There's no way around that. These are the clothes of the wealthy. Oh, but that second man, that second man, he comes in and he's, he's wearing dirty clothes. He has no ring to mention. Everything about the second man screams, He's a poor. He's low class. He sleeps in his clothes. He works in his clothes. He sweats in his clothes. But the issue is not what they're wearing. It's nice when you can wear nice clothing to church. Nobody would fault someone for that. It's nice when you can be clean and come to church and smell nice. That's not the problem. Nobody's going to go up to the rich man and tell him, hey, buddy, you're dressing too flashy. Make sure you wear a, a, just a polo and some jeans next week, okay? Nobody's going to say that to him. And no one's going to come up to the poor man and say, you need to dress up. The problem is not the visitor. The problem is the church. 
Verses 2 and 3, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? James is not condemning anyone. He's merely asking a question. And he's continuing this hypothetical scenario. Suppose these two men come into your church. What do you do? Well, look again at the natural reaction. He says, suppose you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the bright clothes and the ring. And you tell that guy, you come up here, you sit in a good spot. Maybe today we'd have him make sure he comes and sits in the front row so the camera, people watching online can see this fancy guy come in and oh, oh, he goes to church there. Wow, that's nice. And, and all through the service, the whole sanctuary has to notice the guy and when service is over, well, he's gonna get up and he's gonna walk out and everybody has to see him again. We've got to get this guy coming back to our church. A few years ago, famous pop star, I won't even say his name, he supposedly gave his heart to the Lord and became a Christian, and he joined one of the largest churches in America. And every week, if you were to watch one of their services, he had his own VIP section in the sanctuary with his entourage all around him, about nine rows dedicated to one man. It's the very thing James is describing. It's sin. Come up here, sit at this place of honor. Have the more comfortable chairs. Jesus warns the church not to become like that. He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. James is saying, as a church, you should not push a man to do such a thing. And notice what happens with the other guy. The dirty guy, the guy in the dingy looking clothes. Hey, you don't even get to sit down. Just stand over there. Or, okay, you want to sit down? You got to sit by my stinky feet. Is this welcoming? Is this really honoring? Is this loving? Of course it's not. Look at verse 4. He says, if you've done this, you've have you not made distinctions among yourselves? It's rhetorical. Of course we have. We've judged. We've looked at the outward appearance, knowing full well the inward appearance is what God looks at. That's what he told Samuel when Samuel was going to anoint the next king of Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And yet we make the same mistake today. Of course we do. In fact, I've watched it happen. I've watched it happen in our church. I've watched it happen in many churches. We say, no, we don't do that, Pastor. Yes, we do. We don't, I don't think we do it on purpose. I really don't think we do it because we're meaning to be cruel. But watch yourself the next time we have someone pull up in a banged up pickup, wearing work clothes, or a broken down car, single mom, and then watch how we treat the white family of, with 2.5 kids and a dog and how we fall over ourselves to make sure they know we're here for them. There is a difference. And we have to be willing to admit that if we're to grow. In church, I'm just as guilty. 
Don't think for a second I'm standing up here with rocks in my hand that I haven't thrown at myself. As your pastor, I don't say this as a rebuke. It's a challenge for all of us together to watch ourselves, to watch how we speak to those who come in our doors, to go the extra mile, to be kind to all, to get to know the unfamiliar faces. When sometimes we'll excuse it, we'll say, well, it's not my week to greet or I'm not even on your hospitality team, pastor, lay off. But if you're a Christian, hospitality is your thing. It has to be. We're commanded to be hospitable as Christians. And if you find yourself not hospitable, maybe you need to think again about your salvation itself. Paul tells us, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Church, we will be judged by how we welcome those who come in our doors. And an unwelcoming church is no church of Christ. So how do we honor? That's the next thing, right? Verse five, listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Again, James calls them brothers. He wants to get their attention. He's saying, look up here, look up here, listen. Why does he say listen? Because not that far up the page, not that far, not that long ago, he was saying, don't just be hearers, be doers of the word. Don't just hear what I'm saying to you, do something about it. It's the same word he uses back in verse 19 of chapter 1, akusai. It's to be actively listening, to hear it and do it. Hear it, think about it, and do it. To be active. To urge them to think while they're listening to him. And then he poses this question. He said, didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And then he rephrases it. He says, aren't those same poor of this world to be heirs of the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And you understand that is a subtle reminder to them as to who they are. In other words, he's saying, didn't, didn't God choose you when you were the poor of this world? If you're a Christian, weren't you at least at one point poor in spirit? I thank God he didn't look at my checkbook and say, hey, I don't really care if he's part of this or not. God doesn't look at your popularity and say, well, okay, maybe we'll let them in. The standard of this world has no bearing on God's grace. Paul says to the Corinthians, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. To the church at Ephesus, he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Doesn't say anything at all about how special I must have been for God to want me. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Didn't God choose the poor of this world? Absolutely, he chose us. Me, you. It's nothing I'm special. I'm, I'm nobody famous. That's not to say that God does not save the pro athlete. It's not to say that God does not save the billionaire or the celebrity 
But most often it's the poor, the downcast, the outcast, the lowly, the criminal, the nobody that he takes and he blesses and he lifts up and he draws in and he raises and he justifies and he sanctifies. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. You see, God loves to scrape the bottom of the barrel and take those people and do great and mighty things. But all too often the church will dismiss them because we don't like the smell of what comes from the bottom of the barrel. We are all guilty of this. Verse 6 says, But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? You've dishonored the poor man, he said. Now James isn't saying they've done this recently. He's not implying they're doing it at all. But it's something the church falls into the temptation of doing. And so he's explaining to them, he's saying that if you do this, If you fall into this sin, this is what you are doing here. You are destroying that man. Within the grounds of the scenario he's proposed, he's saying you've shamed him. You've made yourself the judge. Even though God has chosen the poor, you'd rather have the rich or the flashy in the place of honor. And you'd make that poor fellow just, well, he can be a part of it, but he's got to stand somewhere else. Why would such a person ever want to be a part of a church that treats them that way? And so James asks another question. He says, it's almost a, by the way, isn't it the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? We have to understand something here. This is a cultural reference James is making. The Roman courts almost always favored the rich. They could initiate lawsuits against those they deemed socially inferior. And if the people, the the court deemed those people indeed socially inferior, there's no way they were going to win any lawsuit. So the the Roman citizen would dress nice and go to court and, and try to show how wealthy they were. And when you went to court, if you were the poor person, well, you did your best and hoped that maybe Maybe you got the one judge that was the exception to the rule. Now the Jewish courts, they, they tried to find a workaround with this. They made the plaintiff and the defendant wear similar clothing so that there was fairness. But the Roman courts, that didn't, didn't work so well. So they'd either show off how wealthy they were with their clothing or they'd hire an attorney to do it for them. And often the courts would rule in their favor. That's why Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 5, he says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're on your way to the court. He says, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, the judge of the officer, and you be thrown into prison. In other words, he's saying, make peace if you can so he doesn't shame you. James is saying, isn't that what they do though? They, They openly shame you in court. They oppress you. Their lawyers and their lawsuits keep you down. And yet, the church, if given the opportunity, those who would experience such shame would turn right around and do it to someone else if they didn't fit the mold of what they wanted in the church. So finally, James asked this last question in this section. He says, do do they, meaning the rich, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? He's saying, don't the rich blaspheme? That's probably a reference to the religious courts they would take them to, put them out of the synagogues. When someone became a Christian, they would take them to the synagogue and have them cast out 
Wealthy Jewish opponents would do this to Jewish Christians often. In fact, again, Jesus warns the church of this. He said, they'll make you outcasts from the synagogue. In fact, he goes on to say, they do it with such a nature, they think they're doing a good thing. They think they're offering a sacrifice to God. And still yet, when such a person would dare to join the assembly, whether they were there for salvation or maybe they were just a tourist wanting to check out what was going on, what those Christian Jews were up to, James never tells us the intention of the visitor. The church themselves would fall over themselves to satisfy the wealthy man's ego. Same person who, if given a chance, would drag them off to court and have them thrown in prison to shame and oppress them. You know, James would have no problem if if this man were a true brother in Christ to bring him in, to show him around. But what he's telling us is that he's just there. And the people's attitude is beyond just making him feel welcomed. And all the while, they treat the poor man, an equally potential disciple of Christ, as if he's less than, or as if he's refuse. It's not just, church, it's not just about how we show honor. It's who we are honoring and why we are honoring them. Paul tells us the only honor we should be quick to show is that which goes to everyone but ourselves. Philippians 2.3 says, do, not, uh, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And that takes us to the third and final question. How do we love? Verses 8 and 9 says, if however... If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The two greatest commandments in all of scripture have to do with love. Jesus makes this very clear. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James appeals to the second. Look at it again in your Bible. If we're loving our neighbors as ourselves, he says we're doing well. But, but, if we are showing partiality, we are committing sin. A couple of weeks ago, I suggested in the message that churches can be tempted to sin. What is James saying the church is doing if they are showing partiality? Sinning. As a whole church, if we're choosing to honor the wealthy, the more popular, the clean, those who look better on the outside, and not honor the poor, the nobodies, the dirty, then we as a church are sinning. We're not keeping the second greatest commandment, and how could we dare say, well, at least we kept the first, because we're not doing that either. John tells us as much in 1 John 4, he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother. So it follows, if we're loving God right, then anyone who walks in the doors, regardless of their look, regardless of their reputation, we should be found loving. Now, I want to give a small caveat here. If they come in and they're acting quite unlovable, that's a little different. Maybe they come in and they've got a lot of bluster or a lot of anger. They've got a a chip on their shoulder. Well, that's not going to make it as easy, is it? You know, we should still try to investigate 
see why they came in with that attitude and show grace where we can. If they come in looking to do harm, perhaps, we have an obligation to love the church family and love those around us to seek to protect them. That's why James is not talking about their character. James is only talking about their appearance. It is unloving of the church to tolerate those who come into the church seeking to cause problems and hurt others, and that should be obvious. But if we are unloving based on what we see only, that's a sin issue, and it's one that has infected the church. It's unloving to show partiality. Now, James is going to prove this. He's going to give us one more hypothetical situation. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do commit adultery, but do not commit murder, you've become a transgressor transgressor of the law. James is not saying it's okay to do one or the other, by the way. Please do not kill anybody. The idea of not being able to keep the whole law must have been a topic of conversation with Jewish Christians often. Paul also speaks of it in Galatians 5, and I won't read the verses for time's sake, but James is saying that if a person, and he's, he's writing to Jewish Christians, remember, if they're to seek to keep the whole law, but they, they fail in one aspect, it's as if they weren't keeping the whole law, but they were breaking the whole thing. Because God said do not commit adultery, he also said don't commit murder. James is making his case here. Now, if you don't commit adultery, that's great, but if you go and off somebody, it doesn't matter that you kept the rest of the law. The law has been broken. You might be sitting there or watching online and saying, Well, that's great, Pastor Jeff, but I don't know if you've heard, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore. We are still under the moral law of the Old Testament, and we are still under the Ten Commandments. Yes, that that part is technically true. And we are to keep the instruction given to us by Christ and by his apostles. And the commands of Christ, if we keep all of them, Say we go to church every Sunday, we study our Bible, we're there every Wednesday night, we pray every day, and yet we are unloving to our neighbor, unloving to our brother or sister, hateful towards the visitor. We are invalidating the rest of the commands. One of the biggest head scratchers for me, and and this is a lifelong thing I cannot figure out for the life of me. For those who claim to be all about loving Jesus but they don't show love to others. They don't love, they say things like, I'm all about Jesus, but I hate church. I love Jesus, but I can't stand Christians. Well, then don't be around them. Don't go to church. Why do you have to tell everybody that? That's the thing I just don't understand. And you can't say you love Jesus and then hate his bride. You can't say you love the Lord and then hate those who he's redeemed. You can't say you love Jesus, then disregard someone who wants to join his church. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. I don't think we really get that sometimes. Pastor, you show a lot of grace with so-and-so. Yeah, I do, because I've been shown a lot of grace. When we've been loved by God, when we've received his grace, when we truly understand the heaviness of our own sin and what God has forgiven and cast as far as the east is from the west, it becomes easier to show grace. 
And so James tells the church, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The law of liberty, true freedom, is the freedom we have to obey God and do what pleases him. We touched on this last week. The, the law of Christ is the law of liberty. We're not just set free from the penalty of sin. We're set free from the power of sin, from the control of sin. And therefore, if we've been freed from the burden of our sin, why would we dare to heap judgment on someone else when we've been shown mercy ourselves? Why would we, as a church, why would we want to be partial to someone based on their outward appearance when God knows our inner yuckiness, our inner workings? He knows our heart better than we know ourselves. He knows the dirty thoughts of your mind. Why wouldn't we want to show mercy to someone else? Mercy was a requirement in the Old Testament. Micah 6.8 tells us, He's told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Some translations say kindness. Mercy is a requirement of the church too, the believers in Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. If we don't forgive others, then our Father will not forgive our transgressions. That's what Jesus tells his disciples right after giving them a model on how to pray. Church, how do we love? How do we honor? How do we welcome? That's what we have to ask ourselves today. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come back. And God's love for us, of course, was expressed in his son's perfect sinless life being ended on the cross. As payment for our sin, for our actions, our thoughts, our our feelings that separate us from the holiness of God. And his love is further expressed as the son rises from the grave, ascends to the right hand of God where he intercedes and speaks to the father on our behalf regardless of our look, regardless of our clothing, regardless of our jewelry or wealth. James is warning us of the sin of partiality. Could you imagine God looking at you and saying, no thank you, I'm done with you. I can't have you in my church. Just see your way to the back of the room and stand there with the rest of the unwanted things. But if we've received the Son, if we repent and believe, Paul tells us he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God no longer looks at you and sees the wretched, wretched sinner because your wretched sin was placed on the sinless one at the cross. And now he looks upon his son, his only son, and he sees your sin. And when he looks upon you, he sees the spotless, sinless son. You see, that's how the atonement works. And it works for someone who is as wretched as I know I can be. How can I not welcome and honor and love others who just want a glimpse of the kingdom of God? This morning as we close, will you be brave enough to ask the Holy Spirit, convict me if I've been guilty of this? Will you be bold enough to, as we worship, say, Holy Spirit, push me, challenge me, change me if I'm doing it wrong? You see, pride says it's never me. It's not me. It's them. They're the problem. So-and-so has the issue. Not me. But it's humility that says, Lord, where must I rise to meet the challenge?
As we worship today, may we pray in humility and be the church God is calling us to be together. Will you stand as we close?